of the four bran- or the five branches, what made you choose the army? My grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was an infantryman through the Korean War and World War II, and uh, that was the one from the sister battalion that I served under. And uh, I always heard the greatest stories about him. Um, I've always known my grandfather be a very loving man, but to hear the heroic things that he was done in his career just spoke a complete opposite of everything that I grew up with. And so I was, I always had a curiosity about what that was. When you say a complete opposite of what you grew up with. So you heard the stories that he did a lot of good. Did you, was he alive while you were growing up? He was. Yeah. And was Um, he open about his military career? He wasn't. And that was probably the thing because (laughs) like the only thing I saw was his big giant jolly man with a big old beard on his face. And he always had a big hug for you. He's always a loving kind of grandfather. And so to hear the, the trials that he had gone through in his life, uh, really sparked an interest to me. Did he serve a career? He did. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a lot of career military in your family, not just, Hey, I'll do my four years and get out. Right. And so for you, when you were going in, were you thinking career? I was thinking career. Um, I didn't want to do something and do it half ass. Uh, just not that kind of type of person. So when I did it, I had planned to go all the way. Um, but once I got injured, things kind of changed. A lot of things happened in those two years that I spent in country. And by the time I was done, I was really done with it. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. My name is Paul Pantani, and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. With the help of my guest, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also going to have guests who are going to talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Joining me for episode 75 is Wally Fenene. Wally's an Army veteran, and in 2007, while on deployment in Iraq, he knelt on an IED. The subsequent explosion took most of his right arm and leg. But through his strong mental mindset and the support of his family, he hasn't allowed his injuries to stop him from living his life. Besides being Mr. Mom, he got back into surfing, he hits the gym hard, and even regularly breaks his prosthetics. He started doing jujitsu, and he also took up hunting. I got to meet Wally through jujitsu, and it's been an honor to be smashed by this humble giant and amazing human. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please enjoy. I started this podcast a little over a year ago, um, September 2021, it went live. Oh, okay. And it just, it kind of grew out of a project that I was doing at work. And then uh, I just kind of thought, ah, let me, let me see where this goes. And then initially it was, I was just going to kind of focus on law enforcement. And um, when I really started digging into it, the one thing that really became important to me was the fact that both careers, military and, and the first responder community do a great job of luring us in. They, they, you know, they recruit very well. Hey, look at all the cool things you can do and look uh, at all the opportunities you have. But when it comes time to walk out the door, a lot of times it's like, don't let the door hit you on the way out, you know? And, right. and I know on the military side, they have the TAPS program. Um, but most of the, the people that I've talked to, you get to a point where you're just done and you're all right, I'm, I'm ready to be out of the military. And so you're not really paying attention to the TAPS program. You're just like, right. let me just check the box and get out of here. And so my ultimate goal is just to, from a selfish side of things, talk to interesting people and learn interesting stories. And I've had the opportunity already to, to meet some very interesting people and, and hear some very interesting stories. But more importantly is I really believe that everyone's story is different and how you tell your story is going to resonate different with somebody than if I said the same thing myself, if that kind of makes sense. And so equally important to me is the, the backbone of this podcast is all right. the, The most important thing you need to do is you need to be thinking about your exit out because these careers, they, they aren't forever. Right. If you're lucky enough to go all the way to retirement, great, but you still have time to do something afterwards. The, the other side of it is 
you're an extreme example of an injury, but you could, in, you could just blow out a knee, you could blow out a back or whatever, where it's not debilitating to where you can't go get another job. But if it's just forced upon you and you haven't thought about, well, what will I do after this? Then, then that becomes, and I've talked to, to several people already who've said, I didn't have a plan. And that was part of their downfall is they kind of got into that, that, that spiral of drinking, you know, because they didn't know what they were going to do. Right. And they put so much of their identity in whether a first responder or military in that uniform. And when they didn't have that, it's like, well, now what? Um, the other thing is, is that as we all know, you read the news every day, the number of suicides just keeps going up and up. And I honestly believe, well, I've got a friend of mine who's a psychologist and she says, part of it is that's just a mirror of society. First responder and military community are, are the same percentage of overall society. Okay, fine. But I do believe that, that we can have an active impact in trying to prevent that. Hmm. And so for me, it's been very important to present guests who have dealt with the mental health issues, pull themselves out of it, or presenting guests who are in those fields, helping others and kind of giving advice of like, Hey, this is what you kind of need to do. And then obviously the, the other part of it is, and I'm sure you remember from when you were in, in, when you were active, there were those senior people who you looked at them and you're like, you haven't taken care of yourself. Maybe not as much for the military. Cause I know the military does have mandatory physical fitness where law enforcement and first responders, a lot of right. them don't. And so in my career, I've seen those people who haven't taken care of their health. You know, they, they get to their retirement age, they're severely obese, right. they're out of shape. They can't, they, even if they wanted to go enjoy retirement, they aren't in a physical sense able do to do so. that. Yeah. And so with that, I also interview guests who are either, um, giving back to the law enforcement and military, kind of like how we met at that, um, the, right. the, the veterans Absolutely. event. So it's, it's giving, it's telling people, Hey, prepare for tomorrow, but take care of yourself today. Hmm. So that's kind of the encapsulation of, of what the podcast is about. I dig it. That's awesome. Do you want me to grab you a bottle of water for? I'm okay. You sure? Yeah. So before we go forward, let's start with where's, where, where were you born? I was born in Hawaii, um, on the island of Oahu, uh, on the North shore. Um, parents are from there, grew up there, born there, raised there. Um, I'm the youngest of four. So when we moved to California, I was, uh, about six years old. Father was a seaman in the Navy and, uh, he chose to raise us out here after he, after he retired. So he retired and then you guys came to the mainland? Uh, no, he retired in San Diego and then we moved to Temecula here in town and uh, he became an LEO for uh, Riverside Sheriff's Department oh, okay. first and then he retired from Temecula Police Department. And you, you mentioned your four, um, you were one of four and growing up, well, when you came here at six years old, did you really realize you were leaving Hawaii and, and how, did it upset you at all? Um, I knew that we were leaving, um, all of our families back there. Um, but we are, the four of us children were all raised pretty close. Um, we were really raised in a church going household. Uh, father was pretty strict. Mother was loving. So we had everything that we kind of needed. Kind of balanced um, it out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but amongst all those things that we had, the four of us children having to pull together, no matter where we went was something that always was prevalent. Um, so moving out here to California wasn't so much that we didn't want to move away from home because we had already moved. Our, my father had retired in San Diego. So we'd been up here for a couple of years and, uh, it was as long as we we're around each other, we just had everything that we needed. What's the age range between you uh, being the youngest and your oldest. So me being the youngest and the oldest is a 10 year gap. And then everybody falls between two or three years. Had you experienced a lot of moving prior to coming to California? Um, you know, just being born in Hawaii and then moving to San Diego and then moving to Temecula. Once we had settled here in Temecula, we didn't move. And so I had, I had been raised here for the most part since elementary school. So you've really seen the area change. Yeah, absolutely. 
And growing up, what took up your time? Were you active into sports? Um, I was active into sports, but uh, not until high school. And up until then, it was just running around with my brother, riding bikes, getting into trouble and hanging out with our friends. We're going to obviously talk about, you know, your jujitsu journey, but did you do any wrestling or anything as that as a kid? Um, uh, in high school, um, I was the youngest of four, so my parents kind of had an eye on the older children and, um, I kind of didn't make my breakthrough until I hit high school. I had a little bit of freedom to kind of do things on my own a little bit. And I ran with it. Being the youngest, were you able to get away with more or were you more kind of a squared away kid? Um, I didn't really get away with a whole lot. <laughs> Um, I definitely got in trouble for the things that I did. And so it kind of, I guess I learned from a young age and definitely being the youngest, I'd seen examples from my older siblings. So I guess I just had a different mindset. Did you have military as in your path for your future as a young age or did come later? No, but I do come from a military family. My grandfather was in the uh, army, actually the sister battalion that I served in, in the army. And then my father had retired from the uh, Navy brothers and the, went into the Navy brother in the Marine Corps and me in the army. So um, the option was always there. The examples were always there. Um, but I don't think I pulled the trigger on it until I was about 20 years old. Any of your other siblings go in the military? Um, I got a brother in the Navy and a brother in the Marine Corps. So I guess where I'm going with that, was it pushed by your dad to? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all, actually. I don't know how any of us decided to join, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And especially, there's there's so many of us that have gripes with our father and the way that we were raised. And my God, this man was so hard and he was crazy. And there's just stories all over the place. But um, it was definitely a, ch- a choice that I made on my own. When you and your siblings decided to go in, was your dad supportive of it? Or was it kind of like, what are you making this decision for? Yeah, our father, uh, our parents love us. So whatever we chose to do, they were going to support. So we always had that support. From their side of it, what do you think they wanted? Like, was there talk of what they wanted you to do as adults? Was college on the no, horizon? No, actually, none of that was. Um, I don't think we had the money to go to school anyway. And so if we were going to go to school, it was going to be by our, our own doing which probably would have been the military or going to loan debt. I, I didn't want to do that. Was there ever any talk of your parents, especially like once your dad retired to go back to Hawaii? Um, no, I, we live our life out here. Um, from the all the sibling to me started having kids. So once my parents were, um, starting to see grandchildren, it was kind of lamented that we were staying here. So what year, what year did you graduate high school? 2000. And you knew at that point you were going in? No, at that point, I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to get out of Temecula. <laughs> I wanted to get out of my parents' house. And so what's, at the age of 17, that's exactly what I did. I had a cousin that uh, lives in Alaska, and so I moved out there. I started working, found a job, did all kinds of stuff under the sun out there in Alaska. And then I joined the, the military from out there. So that's a, that's a unique uh, path. What was it like your first winter in Alaska? I was lost. Coming from Southern California. Yeah, I don't know if you've been in the snow, but I had never been well, in the snow. Well, not Alaska snow. I mean. Everything kind of tends to look the same. <laughs> Once that snow hits, I woke up in the morning and I couldn't recognize anything. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, but aside from not having a vehicle with uh, studs on it or four-wheel drive, it was, it was a rough winter, that first one. And how many years did you end up spending up there? Uh, I spent three before joining. And did you overall, did you enjoy it or I loved it? I don't know if you've been to Alaska, but I've not. it is gorgeous. Where were you at in Alaska? Anchorage, Wasilla and Eagle river. And I've obviously have heard of Anchorage where for the most of part of your time there, were you in bigger cities or more remote areas? Uh, more remote areas. And what were you doing up there? Um, working as a truck driver, working in a warehouse, um, Gosh, what else? Construction, uh, Chinese buffet cook. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so 18 to 20 something, I, I found a lot of things to do. If you were enjoying it up there, what what pushed the... the- I was enjoying it up until uh, I had gotten to some personal issues with family and friends. And um, I felt my life was going down wrong, the wrong path. And because of all the people that I'd brought into my life living out there... 
I, I, I didn't see it going too much further than that. And so I was looking for a way out. How can I get out? Military is a good door to open and it fit. Was it just limited opportunities or did you actually see yourself going down a path of potentially ending yourself up in trouble? Um, it was girl trouble and I didn't want to be around it anymore. Um, I was kind of done with it. I'd really fallen in love with this young lady and she had a kid and I fell in love with the kid and then it just went sour. And then I, I didn't want to be around it. I didn't want to be seeing them in a grocery store when I'm going to grab groceries or anything like that. We live in the same city. Um, and I just wanted to get out of it. And of the four brand or the five branches, what made you choose the army? My grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was an infantryman through the Korean war and world war two. And, uh, that was the one from the sister battalion that I served under. And, uh, I always heard the greatest stories about him. Um, I've always known my grandfather be a very loving man, but to hear the heroic things that he was done in his career just spoke a complete opposite of everything that I grew up with. And so I was, I always had a curiosity about what that was. When you say a complete opposite of what you grew up with. So you heard the stories that he did a lot of good. Th did you, was he alive while you were growing up? He was. Yeah. And was um, he open about his military? He career? wasn't. And that was probably the thing because <laughs> like the only thing I saw was this big giant jolly man with a big old beard on his face. And he always had a big hug for you. He's always a loving kind of grandfather. And so to hear the, the trials that he had gone through in his life uh, really sparked an interest to me. Did he serve a career? He did. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a lot of career military yeah. in your family, not just, Hey, I'll do my four years right. and get out. Right. And so for you, when you were going in, were you thinking career? I was thinking career. Um, I didn't want to do something and do it half ass. Uh, just not that kind of type of person. So when I did it, I had planned to go all the way. Um, but once I got injured, things kind of changed. A lot of things happened in those two years that I spent in country. And by the time I was done, I was really done with it. So what year did you go in? I went in in 2002 and I'd gotten blown up in 2008. Yeah. And when you went in, what did you want to do? Did you just want to go infantry? I want to go infantry. Yeah. And so let's fast forward then. So how many times did you ultimately deploy? I deployed in, I, I deployed twice. Uh, the first one was to Afghanistan. It was for 15 months. Um, 03 to 04. And then again in 06, no, 04 to 05 and then 06 to 07 in Iraq. And your injury occurred when? In Iraq. Um, what? Um, it was month 14 with two weeks left to go home. So to, to, have, to actually boil it down, specific date that it occurred? Oh, uh, May 8th, 2009. And can you kind of walk us through what exactly happened? Uh, so we were, uh, it was one of the last missions. We were the, la we were the battalion that was trading off with the incoming unit. And so um, we'd gone on a patrol um, we had a very high speed commanding officer of the battalion or of the, of the company. And so he had wanted to run missions up until like the last few days before of us pulling out. Um, so one of those last missions was, uh, doing a court on a search of a village and my squad was a inserting squad. So we send the squad into the village, breaks up the village. You have the whole village surrounded by the, uh, security forces and then the inserting teams just do their job um while we were inserting into the village we started taking fire took a knee and then uh when i got up to run it exploded underneath my foot so. in that moment um well several angles that i want to go on with this how soon did you know you were gravely injured um, so I, I was on a knee, I stood up, I heard this big bang, felt it in my soul and then I couldn't move and I just kind of fell back and I wasn't sure at that point how bad it was. Um, my brothers were coming up to me, making sure I was okay. Um, called in a bird and 
I didn't realize how bad it was until they put me onto the bird and it wasn't a first, uh, first aid flight. And so they just had a black Hawk. They moved everything off the floor and they shoved me on top. And, uh, when they shoved me in the, on the floor of the bird, I felt my boot hit my hip and I looked down and I saw my boot and I realized that leg was it's not supposed to be, my uh, boot shouldn't be at my hip. Right. Um, I knew at that point my leg was gone. And then, uh, when I woke up in the hospital, probably a couple weeks after that, it was my wife that woke me up and, um, my, my arm was bandaged heavily. I wasn't sure what was underneath the bandage, but I did have an itching feeling in my hand. And so I was pretty darn certain that my hand was there. And so I had asked my wife to take a pen or something, stick it under there and scratch my hand. And then she looked at me and she said, well, your hand's gone. And that, I don't know why, but hearing that kind of, kind of broke my spirits a little bit. Um, I'm right-handed. So everything I love drawing, I love doing everything with my hands and just hearing that it was just, uh, it was a downer, huge downer. Um, but like I said, it was my wife who told it to me. I had a six month, six month old daughter in her arms. Um, was that your first child? That was my first child. Yeah. Um, and I realized how lucky I was to be laying there looking at both of them. And so it wasn't, um, very long that that feeling stuck around, but I'll, I'll definitely remember that distinct feeling. I've, I've talked to and, and read in stories of soldiers who have been injured significantly. And one of the things that they deal with are children who come in and remember them when they were old. Oh my gosh. And right. having to deal with seeing daddy sure. or mommy. You know, I have so friends that have un- same situation. Fortunately, your daughter only knows you now right. one way. So thankful. Which hospital were you in at this point? Um, I was at Walter Reed. And how long did you end up spending there? I was there for about two weeks. Um, two weeks, and then they had opened up Balboa in San Diego for uh, injured veterans. And so they were accepting, and I was probably one of the first or second batches of soldiers coming into the hospital. And that initial period of, like you mentioned, where you have to rationalize, I no longer have my right hand, I no longer have my right leg. Um, and for those who are not watching, you've, you're amputated just below the elbow yep. on your right and on just right. below the knee on your right leg. Uh, just above the just knee on my right leg. That initial transition of accepting that, was it a, was it a hard transition for you or, I mean, I don't think anybody ever, I can't yeah. imagine anybody ever says it's easy, but was it. I think there's things that make it easy. It just depends on your spirit, what kind of person you are, how much you have inside of you to pull through the situation. Um, for myself, it, it was a big mixed bag and, uh, it wasn't the easiest thing. Uh, I don't, I can't imagine anybody who misses limbs has an easy time coping with it. Um, but I made it work. Obviously, I'm assuming you, you got a lot of support from your family. Yeah. Yep. Um, my father had uh, taken an early retirement so that he can come and, uh, help my wife take care of me and my daughter. And so I had that. And um, I have a very strong wife. For you, was there ever a point where the military gave you the option or you thought about finding a way to get prosthesis and redeploy or stay Um, in? That was not happening actually. Um, And it wasn't until I had gone through all my therapy that I had heard about the first one go to return back to combat. And I think that if I had the option to do so, I probably would have taken it. So it wasn't even give you. It wasn't an option. Yeah. And could, is it something that, well, could you have gone back and tried to fight for it? Or you, it, was it just, you were too far past being able to? Too far past, um, both for myself and uh, for my family. And what was the process like getting used to using prosthetics? Crazy. Because there's somebody that I work with who knows you and, and um, you may not re- know him um, by name, but his name is Thane. And you remember his running into you at a gym quite a few years ago and watching you work out and and basically coming in with your bag of accessories 
and and I want to get into that, but just I'm assuming that that wasn't your first venture into prosthetics. It was probably no. very basic prosthetics. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, being going to the hospital, I was blessed with a physical therapist that would push me both mentally and physically and never let me sulk. They never, I never had the opportunity to just sit there and feel sorry for myself. And I think the fact that I had stayed so busy with such a strong support system that I kind of turned a blind eye to any kind of weakness that I might've been feeling at the time. And so everything was just straightforward, a hundred percent, um, fast as I can go. And I didn't, I didn't hit that wall until years later, but, um, there was, there was no way that I could have failed coming out of the hospital without that much support. And so moving forward and, and getting into your normal life for somebody who, who might be, if they're listening to this and, and just starting their process, maybe they've been injured. What are some of the initial things that you advice you could give from just that initial transition? Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was just being strong for myself. Um, I did have a lot of support. I had a wife who loved and supported me, but if you're not willing to do it yourself, if you don't believe in yourself that you can pull through these things, then you might not, you know? And, um, my my mindset was just on point. Uh, I was very strong minded before I had gotten blown up. And, um, I think that stuck with me. Making the transition to wanting to move forward with your life. I'll, I'll loosely call it that and wanting to get into working out. And we're going to talk about, you know, jujitsu and stuff like that. But as far as getting the prosthesis to be able to work out is, are there different pieces that you need and have, there and are. how did they come about? Um, by my activity level. Uh, so when I was in the hospital, one of those physical therapists asked me, what do you want to do? Wally? what do you want to do with your time here? What do you want to get back into? What do you want to try? That's new, anything. And one of the biggest things for me was getting back on a surfboard, getting into the ocean and paddling into some waves. Wasn't sure if I could do it. Um, always loved it. And so that was my, that was my number one thing on my list. So we started in a pool, started paddling on a board in the pool, started swimming lengths of the pool. My cardiovascular improved, my health improved, my physical fitness improved. And by the time we were able to, ready to go into the ocean, um, it was a breeze. It was almost like I had my limbs again. Um, but it wouldn't have been that smooth if I, if I wasn't walked into it the way that I was. Did you get with a surf specific physical therapy person or did the person just happen to go, Hey, this is what we're going to try. So this was in Balboa, San Diego. Um, it really is true that a lot of people who live in San Diego surf. No, no, <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> but, um, my physical therapist was an avid surfer. Uh, she had surfboards. She put me on them and I felt safe. Uh, she was, she had a good rapport with, uh, Del Mar 15th street lifeguards. And so it was every Friday, every Tuesday. And sometimes I think Thursdays we would go out there, surf with the lifeguards, any help that we needed, they were there to give it to me. And as time progressed, more and more guys would join us. Um, started off with a buddy of mine, Bryce. He, he's also an avid surfer now too. Um, but after Bryce, just more and more guys were coming out. It became a very big thing, very uh, therapeutic thing. And it became very supported by uh, local surf companies down there in San Diego by the hospital. Have you heard of One More Wave? One More Wave. I don't think I have. They're a nonprofit um, out of San Diego. They okay. do surf therapy for um, injured and disabled veterans. Awesome. So I'll put you in touch with them when we get done. So with going surfing, you obviously grew up surfing then. So that was something that you really wanted to get back into. I'm going to ask a really weird question or, or did it come back right away? Or obviously I'm assuming you had to get used oh, to all of my trial and errors took place in the pool. Um, that learning how to float on a board, learning how to sit on a board. And, um, once we got out into the ocean, it wasn't one, it wasn't hundred percent smooth. Um, but it was a lot smoother than it would have been had I not. And so, uh, it did take a little, little bit of time. It probably took me about a week before I was up going up down on a board, but 
I was determined and I got it. So. so when you're surfing, are you only using a hand prosthetic or using a hand and leg? I use no prosthetic. Oh. Um, I go nub down with my nub on the back of the board, kind of steering the tail end and my hand uh, grabbing the rail. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I would, I was thinking in my mind, if you were using prosthetics, even with a prosthetic, you're still going to be off balance. Yeah. So you had to completely relearn, I'll give it your center of gravity. Right. And with surfing being the first thing that you wanted to do, when did the, the more advanced working out get into your mindset? Um, I grew up working out and having a love for my time in the weight room. And so that was something that never left me. Even in my mind, I knew it would never leave me. Um, as I started getting and gaining prosthetic use, uh, that was on the top of the list was hitting the gym again. And so it was easy for me to get back into the gym. Um, it was just finding the right prosthetics to support me doing it. And, uh, I was blessed with amazing prosthetists who know their job. Well, now, did you have to push for that or was the VA very willing to work with you to get you what you needed? Uh, during that time I was still in the military going through the therapy and it wasn't until like a year and a half later that the military had released me. And then that's when I picked up the VA benefits. And um, I have no complaints with anything from the VA. I have been taken care of well and my needs run very short. How different are the prosthetics for your day-to-day -day as opposed to working out? Um, my leg is the same leg uh, that I had taken to the gym. The only thing that changes is I don't always wear an arm in my day unless it's specific that I would need it. Um, I always wear an arm to the gym and I have a workout arm with several attachments that I use while I'm in there. And was that easy to, to adjust to? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was more, there was more like of a stoke level for me just to be in the gym, just to be underneath those weights, just to be able to push those off my chest, uh, just be able to squat. Cause you're not strong at all. I mean, <laughs> for somebody who's been smashed by you, you're not strong oh, at all. <laughs> man. Yeah. No, um, I love lifting weights. So, I mean, there was, I knew in my mind that I would get it easily and I was determined enough to do it for you. Now that you're over a decade removed, what has progressed or what has had to be readapted? Um, cause I would imagine your body still changes sure. even as you age. Um, most supremely my mindset, um, the way I look at things, the way I treat people, the way, uh, I treat myself, uh, the way I treat my children, my family, my wife, all of these things that require mental stability have grown supremely. Um, yes, my body is, is in good physical health and I'm able to do many things. But I think if my mindset wasn't to, wasn't so well adapted to what I'm going through that I, I would have such a horrible time here. I guess more what I was asking of there's, there's nothing that we own a car, a TV, whatever, um, ourselves that doesn't need to be addressed as we get older at with, with you and, and using prosthetics has it, is it something like this prosthetic that was fitted for me 10 years ago uh, will they, always be fine? Or do you, are you always in a, they're always, um, I break things quick. <laughs> <laughs> I go into the gym and I'm, I'm pounding those weights. Um, I lift like I used to lift and that's something that I haven't given up. And so, because I'm so heavy on those prosthetics, they break maybe once every six months, maybe, maybe a little bit sooner. And it's, it's no issue with and the VA no issue. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's what's one of the biggest things for me is that I've never had an issue despite my weight fluctuation. Um, but despite me breaking running leg after running leg because of that fluctuation, um, because I'm so heavy with the lifting arms and I break them all the time. I never have an issue gaining new ones. Um, never have an issue having to go and ask or having to find them. It's, it's been really easy and it's, I can't, such a big blessing, you know, and you got put together and I, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the company that adapted your home homes for our troops. Now, how did that process come about? Honestly, I didn't even, it was my wife for the most part. Uh, we had, I'd gotten out. Um, we were looking for a place to live. 
my wife wanted to be somewhere around her family and mine. And so we chose Winchester. And so upon um, medically retiring out of the military, we bought a house in Winchester. That was our first house. And before, before approaching that house, we had looked into organizations. Homes for our troops was one of them, but they just took a while to get back to me. And so we ended up purchasing the house, um, purchased the house. And then several years later, homes for our troops had called us back explained to us that our paperwork had been lost because they had to fire somebody who wasn't doing their job. And they asked if we still wanted the house, if we were still interested. And we said, of course. And so uh, we were enrolled into the program immediately, taken care of, and the house was built in about three to four years. So they don't take an existing house and adapt it to you. They actually build a house around house, you, yeah. so to speak. They have, a, they have like a set model of houses and that's what they that's what they go off of so there's several in this area i have i have quite a few friends that all have the same house uh we go to each other's house often my kids are running around like they know where the bathroom is they know where the secret cupboards are <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of neat but uh we're definitely blessed to have that little side family through homes for our trips no that's really cool it's the first time i'd ever actually even heard heard about okay. it so i think it's really cool that they do that and is that a, a private nonprofit or is that through the government? Oh, it's a private nonprofit. They, uh, they originated off the East coast, um, out of Boston, Massachusetts, and, uh, they still run their organization out of there. And oddly enough, once they trend hand the house over to you though, it's, it's kind of like your home. You don't go back to them for any, any issues. Um, so once they hand you the, the keys to your newly adapted home, you have about a 10 year grace period where, uh, you live in the home. It's your primary residence. And after the 10 year period, they sign the deed over to you. Oh, okay. So I'm approaching year 10 this year. So it, it, it officially becomes yours after right. 10 years. Yep. So let's go into your jujitsu journey. Uh, Where'd that come? How, when did the interest for that come about? Um, so I wrestled in high school. Um, it was probably one of the most profound things that I had experienced at a young age. And the amount of sweat and pain that is produced in a wrestling room is lovely. It is one of the most, if you want to figure out who you are, what you're made of, join, join a wrestling team. Well, and, and something you've already mentioned, and I wonder how much wrestling impacted on it, it had an, its impact, but building that mental strength. Cause right. you talk about Absolutely. coming out of your injury and maybe you went through a small period of woe is me, but quickly it was right. I'm back on it. Yeah. And, and I would imagine wrestling had to have a huge Absolutely. impact on that. Absolutely. Anytime I think about struggles in my life, wrestling's always computed somewhere in that mix, you know? Um, I don't think I'd be as strong as I am today without having gone through those things at a young age. Was your wife kind of like, what the hell are you doing, doing jujitsu or was she <laughs> behind it from the get go? Um, no, she was kind of worried and concerned obviously, but she knew me and she knew my physical abilities. She knew how strong I was. And so she had trusted the process. Did you know anybody else who was, a disabled vet who was doing it or did you just on your own go, Hey, I'm going to go. Um, I didn't. And to be honest with you, I started with my kids and after watching my kids on the mat and their love for it, I couldn't hold back. Oh, so they started doing jujitsu and right. then you're like, ah, I, I, yeah. I need to get that itch back. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've been doing it now. How long? I've been off and on for the past six years. So, uh, my blue belt is weathered, but it is not consistent but this is probably the most consistent I've been in the past year. Well, you've definitely, I mean, having rolled with you and been smashed by you, you've definitely adapted yourself very well to it. Thank but you. did, did it come to you easy from your wrestling background or did it take a long oh, time gosh. to kind of really get to learn to work your body? I would say it came easy. It definitely made sense. Um, all of my understanding of balance and leverage was still there and it was just a small, the small things that I needed to critique and twist to make work. And I got that from our black belts. Poncho was a huge part of that. Um, I know, you know, Poncho. Yeah. So, yeah. The, have, when we got to roll at the, we defy event, have you done many of the veteran specific events? I try to go through, uh, all of them when I see them. Um, if I can make it, I'm definitely there. 
What kind of impact have you had on other veterans drawing them into jujitsu? Injured, uh, uh, injured veterans. Um, you know, I try and drag my friends into this all the time. <laughs> all of my friends, my amputee friends, my able-bodied friends. I swear, I, I, I try and share like the importance almost on a spiritual level of what this is for me and the amazing environment that I roll in the gentlemen and the women who are just amazing people show up on the mats, give a hundred percent and they don't just give a hundred percent wildly. They give a hundred percent in a meaningful manner, meaning like they care about how much they're applying to you. Um, they care about breaking your arm or not. Right. And those kind of things to me are huge. And if they're showing that kind of respect to everybody on the mat, that's the place that I want to be. That's the place that I want to put my kids, you know? And I've been able to find that since, since starting it. So I think that's one of the things that's definitely been a huge factor for me is just realizing that there are a lot of people out there. They just want what's best for you. Right. And, and on the mats, they're like, okay, I'm going to try to kill you right now. But when we're done, we're going to slap hands and say, good job. And, and it's, it is that community. It's, it's a weird sense of family that, that you get. And so I can imagine how much that helps you in, in your mental health right. uh, moving forward. And with you, you mentioned your kids are doing, are they still uh, active my with it? My daughter hated it from the start. <laughs> <laughs> She's a lot like my wife. She's, she gets claustrophobic. She hates people sweating on her. Um, I couldn't bear to keep her going in it if she didn't want to do it. Uh, but my son is, is, is father's, uh, his father's son. So he loves it. How old's your boy? Um, he's 13. Uh, he plays football. He wrestles and does jujitsu. Is he going to be a small man just like you? <laughs> yeah, he's looking at it. <laughs> That's got to um, be fun, though, rolling with him. It is a lot of fun. He has a, for a 13-year-old, he has a pretty amazing physique. Um, he, I have a home gym in my garage. He utilizes it the most. Um, he loves lifting weights. He loves getting big. He loves his muscles. He loves eating, and um, he loves playing the, the guitar. And so it wasn't very hard to get him motivated in anything. You mentioned enjoying art before your injury. Have you been able to adapt your left hand to? to I sure have. I sure have. Um, Many days I sat on the table drawing with my children. I'd love to draw. Um, They also have spawned a love for the same thing. And um, it wouldn't have happened if if I, there weren't those days where I'd put a pad of paper on the table through some pencils and pens and, started drawing with my kids you know where'd your love of art come from oh man i don't know i think it just started at a young age with friends cartoons um just doodling in class i guess did you ever take any formalized art classes and not until high school not until high school and there were graphic arts classes and i i love to draw with a pencil and pen so a little bit different any particular, if there was a style or what, when you sit down to draw, what are you in your mind looking to draw? Is it more figures? Is it more, um, what I would call, uh, not nature, but like an entire picture? Um, an entire picture probably. Do you, are you familiar with the band Sublime? Yeah. Uh, their artwork on their, on their, uh, album covers and stuff like that. Uh, that's probably about right up my alley. So kind of more of, uh, I'll loosely call it an abstract sure. style of art. Yep. And with being able to change to your left hand, have you, does it make your drawing different? Is, is that a, a sound like a weird question? No, um, it doesn't sound like a weird question. I see where you're coming from, but what was amazing for me is that my mind still works very much in the same way. And so the way that my mind talks to my hand still works in the same way. It's just talking to a different hand. Um, so I was really surprised myself that to see like when I, when I started doing it more that they were starting to look a lot more like my right hand was producing it. And the more I did it, the more perfected they became. And so we had done it so much that when I draw something with my left hand, it doesn't look any different from what I used to draw with my right. Is it something that you ever thought, have you ever sold any of your artwork or is it something just for you and yourself? Uh, just something for me and myself, something for me to enjoy with my children. Uh, ever since I had these babies in my life, dude, it's always been for my children. <laughs> um, I've really dedicated most of my time to my babies, and my wife and the life that we enjoy together. 
And I think that's ultimately, you were given the opportunity. You had your life impacted. You've lost a portion of your right leg, a portion of your right arm, but you were given your life. Right. And I, I think that unfortunately, a lot of us, we take our life for granted. Um, I, I don't want everybody to experience what you experience, but right. some of us need that experience to, okay, this is what's important to me. Sure. And you are basically Mr. Mom today, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what does your wife do? Uh, she's a registered nurse. Um, she worked as a registered nurse uh, in the hospital for about three years before becoming a Botox injector. Um, and so she does that primarily. She has a business here in town, and then she does clinical work in San Diego twice a week. So she loves what she does. She loves being a business owner and she couldn't ask for more. <laughs> Do you guys get back to Hawaii often? Uh, we were there last year. Um, before that, maybe the year before. So is, is it with the time away, the, the, the family connections, I don't want to say diminishing, but there's less and less family living out here. No living there. Oh no. All of our family's still there. Your wife also is from Hawaii or from, is she from Southern California? She's from Southern California. Yeah. Um, originally they moved from the Philippines. Uh, her father's a doctor here in town and, uh, they'd been here since I want to say 93. You have any long-term plans of leaving Southern California? Gosh, I'd love to. Where would you, back to Alaska? <laughs> uh, you know, there's so many States. It's not just Alaska. I love, I love Alaska. Um, but Montana's gorgeous. I've hunted quite a bit in Texas and Texas is gorgeous. Um, I can see myself living in different places. It doesn't have to be Alaska. Were you a hunter before the military? No, no, I wasn't. I didn't grow up in the hunting world, nothing. And I had only been hunting for about the past seven years now. What got you into that? A friend of mine, um, nonprofit organization who links up with veterans, disabled veterans and takes them out on hunting trips. And so I'd become very good friends with uh, the owner of one of them and had become very good friends with a lot of other gentlemen who attend these trips as well. And so my best friend who lives in Winchester, we go to, we go on our own, we'll book our own hunts and we'll go to Texas or go to Florida or wherever. What's, what's been your, what gives you the most headaches when you're out, you know, hunting, hunting gear? It's such a fumble. Um, walking around a prosthetic. So we were just in Canada uh, last month hunting moose. And I had bought boots to take out because I heard the terrain was really rough. And so I put these boots on and we walked for about three miles. We walked three miles out and three miles back. And by the time I'd gotten back, I had blisters on my feet. My feet were super sore. And so I ditched them. I took them off and I had hunted barefoot for uh, the rest of the week. And it had been so much easier to get through the terrain barefoot than it was in the hunting boots. Um, and I actually forgot the question that you just asked. I was I just, that up. you know, obviously adapting to hunting as right. an amputee, you know, and I was just kind of wondering, obviously I, I can imagine just the humping alone, right. You know, is going to be ex exacerbated by having to deal with prosthetics, right. but now you're dealing with all the gear and the equipment also. Yeah. Um, so what I found is that the less gear, the better, um, we go f fishing in Alaska and, uh, all of my friends wear waders and they stand in the water and they're wading, they're fishing salmon. And I'm the only one out there in shorts, <laughs> shorts and barefoot, <laughs> but the less gear, the better. That's what I found. And what do you enjoy hunting the most? Ooh, um, deer access deer is probably my favorite. And what, what you got any big trips plan for this coming year? Um, I was given an opportunity to go to Florida next month, turn that one down, but I always plan hunting trips with my buddy and my best friend that lives in Winchester. And so we're probably going to hit up Texas probably somewhere around March. And what will you go after in, in Texas? Texas deer. More meat for the freezer. <laughs> where's your, where's your bucket list hunting spot? Where haven't you hunted that you want to or... Africa. You want to do a, a safari type? I don't know if I want to do a hunt in Africa, but I would love to sit in on one um, just to see the animals, just to be part of the environment, just to breathe that air. Um, I think that would be amazing, but there's so many beautiful animals out there. I'm not sure which one I would want to take. 
and I'd hate to take one just to take it. What's been the, the hairiest or most dangerous experience hunting? while you've been out hunting? I don't think I've had dangerous. Um, I'm not a hunter, but I hear the stories of people who have encountered bear or, or large uh, cats, you know, like while they're hunting and, you know, no, nothing, nothing like that. We're usually pretty safe. Um, everyone's proficient in using firearms, so nothing like that. Usually just a good time. Well, it definitely sounds, you know, I think the, the one thing that I found most expiring, expiring, inspiring about you is you didn't let your injuries stop you. Hmm. You've obviously clearly, you know, taken full advantage of your life yeah. post injury. And I think that that's very inspiring it, to kind of wrap this up. Any last minute advice you'd give to somebody who's been in your shoes, kind of going through that process of, you know, transitioning out as an injured disabled vet. If you have depression issues, see somebody for it. Uh, if you don't think you can do it, I believe you can um, find somebody who believes that you can. If you need help, find it. Other than that, always push forward, always try, you know. If somebody wants to reach out to you personally, can they? Absolutely. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, email, uh, wallacefanena at gmail.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. Right on. I appreciate your time, brother. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, man. I look forward to more roles. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcast and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com. And through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.